Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. I'm Jay Boisseau, the executive director of the Austin Forum, and I'm very pleased to have an Austin Forum attendee as well as a research fellow at Princeton University joining me today to talk about community and culture in computing, Amy Weinkoff. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So Amy, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your research before we jump into talking about different aspects of community and culture? Sure. So as you already mentioned, I work at Princeton University. I work at a center called the Center for Information Technology Policy, which is broadly interested in understanding and researching issues that sit at the intersection between technology, society, and law. So for me, what that means is that I study a variety of issues that are relevant to computing cultures. So for example, um, we know through research and probably personal experience that the technologies that people build and the businesses they build around them are influenced by their personal values, their social dynamics, but also things like financial constraints. And those kinds of dynamics can result in the types of technologies that you and I touch every day, but we're not necessarily aware of how those dynamics inform them. So what I do is to try to peel under that, peer under that curtain a little bit to get better insight into why do technology entrepreneurs do the things that they do? Why do venture capital investors think about investing the way that they do for people that are interested in changing the way organizations function, how do they think about that? So those are the types of issues that I study in my work. Uh, well, uh, uh, that's great. And, and one of the big trends, of course, in computing now is AI. We see, you mentioned tech entrepreneurs, we see huge number of startups in the AI space, uh, including a new boom of them since ChatGPT was launched on November 30th. Are you talking with any AI companies about the culture they're trying to bring into their startup and how that will affect their, their usage of AI, how it will affect the responsible usage of AI, bias in their applications, ethics, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a big focus of what I do. Um, as you mentioned, of course, these technologies are becoming more and more widespread and um, we're discovering more and more some of the harmful things that can come out of AI systems. Um, so right now we encounter lots of large systems on a day-to-day -day basis. You type something into Google, it gives you a search result. These are companies that have existed for a very long time and were founded on different principles and ideas. Most of the work that I'm trying to do right now with um, AI entrepreneurs is with people in emerging organizations because uh, they have a couple of different interesting dynamics. The first is that their culture isn't yet set. So it's a very different thing to be jumping into an organization like Google that already has the set of operating principles and already has well-established bureaucracy and roles versus in a small organization where it's five people that are working in a startup. So um, the ability for people to then influence uh, what becomes this, the culture of their company and the practices of their company, in my opinion, is a lot larger in these very early stage AI companies versus in a big behemoth that's been around for 10 or more years. So um, that's part of why I've gotten interested in that group, but I'm happy to talk more about specifically what that means, because uh, I think there are a lot of other interesting things about that group of people. 
Well, so let's dig into this a little bit. How do you, what's some basic advice you'd give to an AI startup company and how does, what kind of advice do you give them to make sure they're very careful about eliminating bias since that's such a risk in AI to ensure they're developing responsible AI applications? What kind of advice would you give a startup? Yeah, so I'm I'm going to give advice that I'm not sure that everyone um, that I collaborate with would agree upon, um, which is that I think that creating respect, responsible technology is a relative term. Um, we might have a lot of lofty ideals about all the different aspirations we would like our company or our technology to meet. So we might want to build technology that enables access and that creates equal opportunity that doesn't have bias that um, pays workers fairly. And there are a lot of like really important ideals to which technology companies and their products could aspire realistically, it will be difficult to realize all of those things simultaneously. Um, so if when I'm talking to uh, young entrepreneurs, one of the things that I advise them to do is to start early and having conversations about what their personal values are and how they, they see those values as shaping their companies. Um, and then you need to have a really hard conversation about prioritization. So there are, we would like it for it to be the case that business priorities and ethical priorities are always going to align. Uh, in practice, that isn't always the case. So thinking through for our organization, what are top line, the set of values that we're trying to prioritize on a higher social level? And how do we then take those priorities and translate them into the action items that moves that technology forward? Bearing in mind that we're not going to be able to successfully realize those things all the time. But I think if people are afraid to have those conversations because they know they're not going to be able to achieve 100% on all of those things all of the time, then that can lead to worse outcomes because then people aren't prioritizing things explicitly or talking about what kinds of sacrifices they're making explicitly. They're still making those sacrifices, but it's not cognizant and it's not something that everyone's aware of. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to imagine how this impacts companies of different types. You alluded to uh, uh, you know, large companies and the bureaucracy versus small companies. Can you make any, and I realize these are general characterizations, but can you make any general characterizations about the flexibility of the culture and, and the sense of community at startups versus large companies, the role leadership plays in those and the role size plays in those when it comes to establishing a strong culture of inclusiveness, of responsible technology development, of keeping your priorities aligned with ethics, et cetera. Any guidance you have for small and large on that? And do you see any general trends of how that kind of changes between small and large companies, new and old companies? Uh, sure. So I think, I think that these effects in the right direction, uh, if we could say that, can happen at all types of organizations at all different types of maturity stages and sizes. That said, um, the mechanisms through which these things change and the immediacy of um, choices is very different. So um, that said, the kinds of changes that people make, uh, especially early on, they tend to 
be long lasting over time. So things like, for example, research has shown that the sort of professional backgrounds of founders tend to still influence the trajectory of startups long after those founders have since left. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way though that this might happen in a bigger organization rather than through these like smaller settings where it's more obvious how one can like express their beliefs or their ideas and have that take influence in larger organizations a lot of times the people that have done research on this it's a lot of stuff that's more around process so for example there's a researcher uh, michael Medeo, whose work i really like and he's done some research showing that when in a larger organization, a more mature organization, often the way um, engineers' labor is tracked is through a ticketing system. So one files a JIRA ticket of something that is an action item, or they flag an issue in, in their code base, and it's their responsibility to resolve that. So that tends to keep people prioritized week to week on what they're doing, and also then creates like a measurable indicator of the caliber of the work that they're doing. However, a lot of this kind of like ethical social responsibility work tends to not be stuff that is typically encoded in these types of ticketing systems and organizational processes. So to the extent that outcomes can then be included in those things, it both gives developers agency to say, this is the thing I think we should work on. I want this to be my item in the backlog or that I'm currently working on. You need to engage those processes because it enables people to feel more authority to speak up on those issues. And it doesn't feel like an additional labor on top of what they're already doing. That's just the cherry on top, but not something that's like prioritized in the work itself. Um, I asked you about AI companies since that's a focus of the Austin Forum and our so-called AI April. But I want to change gears to a completely different com- uh, kind of company, I believe. And that's the Web3 companies and that sense of decentralization. What, what can you say about Web3 companies and the overall desire for decentralization? Why do some people have that desire? Why do they think that's a better way than the current centralization? And how does the sense of community and culture change in companies working on decentralized techniques versus the more traditional centralized applications and services? Yeah, um, it's been really interesting for me. So I did uh, my background before I came to my current position at Princeton was I was myself working as a data scientist, building machine learning, what some might call AI models and putting those into practice at at technology companies. Um, But I got interested in as well in companies, other types of companies that are at the forefront of emerging technologies and how they think about these types of issues, which is how I veered a bit into this Web3 and blockchain space. So to me, what has been especially interesting about the blockchain and Web3 community is that this technology, um, its origin story often had a lot lot of social mission and political ideas in its founding to begin with. So the types of technologists who initially built blockchain technologies that manifested in Bitcoin, those people tended to have strong ideas about privacy, about shared infrastructure that's in the ownership of the users themselves, as opposed to like with some central entity or um, large corporation. And 
also a flavor in this community was a, like a lot of ideas about um, currency and how that ought to be managed. So many of these people felt like um, they had a strong belief in free markets or the idea that money should be freed from the state and that that was the best way to move forward. So we see that being manifested in a lot of the technical designs of these early blockchain systems. There have been a lot of things that have branched out of that community now. So if you talk to somebody that knows a little bit about blockchain and Web3 and kind of hates it without a lot of familiarity with the community, sometimes they will have something to say about, well, it has this one particular political persuasion, which is actually not an accurate characterization of the community at present. So there's like a lot of different types of groups that are prioritizing different different things. So I've talked to people who are working on projects that they are trying to build explicitly in like a collectivist or a socialist model where they're trying to define new governance that um, creates more equality of voice. And I have also talked to those people that think there should not be national currencies and we need to free money from state and state regulation and regulation is like largely harmful to people's economic well-being. So it spans this like wide gamut. What tends to be very interesting about this community, though, is that the technology itself, for many of the types of folks that I have talked to, it is directly an instantiation of their personal beliefs, which is less often the case on the AI side of things, in my experience from having spent talk to hundreds of these people. So AI entrepreneurs often have strong personal values and may be building out aspects of the company in the service of those values, but the literal design of the machine learning models they're building is usually not falling directly from that belief system. So, um, that could be good or it could be mm -hmm. bad, yeah. but I would say that it is more um, first principles, values based amongst the Web3 and blockchain entrepreneurs that I've talked to than the AI folks. And I think that has different implications for where um, these types of groups go in the future. Amy, I was going to ask you that question and you answered it already. <laughs> the, the difference between some of the the, the way that the belief systems impact the creation of Web3 technologies and companies versus AI companies. And of course, there's other communities out there that are more or less impacted by personal beliefs and, and ethics and morals, like the open source community certainly has yeah. a set of beliefs around it. And it is very much a community by, by definition, open source, many Absolutely. people working on these things. Um, the cybersecurity community, also quite different in some ways uh, because of the nature of what they do and probably impacts their views on privacy uh, and identity as well. Um, do you study any of these communities or, or any others? And do you have any other insights you want to maybe contrast with what you said about AI and culture and community there and Web3 and culture and community there? Maybe I'll just touch a little bit about a commonality that I'll see um, amongst those communities, which is, I, I think, quite interesting that that speaks to one of the topics that you called out, um, that that being privacy. So um, I spend a lot of time with people that are a part of emerging technology communities, not people that are working at companies that have been around for a long time. Um, and 
one of the trends in web two was that we just really need to figure out a way to get data, that data becomes its own currency. We need to collect as much of it as possible because um, we're only really going to be able to gain a business advantage and a technological advantage by capturing a lot of this data. And it's better to get as much of it as possible now on the hope that maybe that will be useful later. And as those technologies for data capture and storage have become less expensive and easier for other people to use, then of course that trend amplified. Um, what we're seeing now though in the public and elsewhere is that people are having a reaction to that. They don't want their data to be collected ad infinitum, especially in ways that whether they can sit in agreements to or not, they might not be fully aware of what, what is going on there. And because there's been so many data leaks of personal information, and it's difficult to know all the ways in which one's personal information can be connected, um, that there's a lot more skepticism around doing that. And so that shift in perspective is something that I see both in the AI community and in the web three and blockchain community that and and this was a bit surprising to me because now i've been around in the technology and industry for some time and there are people much younger than me that are now founders of companies and one of the things that if ai companies had any explicit ethical goal at all it was around privacy that that was something that they would often talk about with their co-founders or their company and were explicitly designing practices uh, to try to minimize data collection or to try to find ways that they would protect data from other types of issues that might violate what people's common understanding of privacy is. And the same holds true by and large in the blockchain and Web3 space. So that may be something that's common across technology professionals and folks that are interested in technology writ large that is a little bit of a sea change from this earlier mentality, I would say. Yeah, you hit on a, a couple of things there that I want to come back to, and that's this this sense, this definition of privacy. It, it, it's it's not clearly defined, and it it means something different to different people. It means it has cultural differences. We we see Europe probably leading the way, arguably, in legislation and policies to protect privacy. Uh, we see in the U.S. a lot of people complain about their data being used, and yet they continue to use free services, and we don't enact much legislation in that regard. So there are, there are cultural differences in the broader community about what privacy means and what you're willing to give up in order to get something else. And I, I wonder how we instill a sense of privacy in these data science companies, these data analytics companies, who make their money by mining this data and connecting it and creating profiles so that they can target ads and target services. So any, any thoughts on how you can uh, in, in, embed more of a sense of privacy in these kinds of companies that do collect lots of data and maybe make them more trustworthy to the consumers of their products and services? Yeah, I actually might issue a call in a different direction on in this regard. So one of the things that I've heard from a number of the entrepreneurs that I've interviewed and spent time with is that um, often, even though regulation is well-intended, it has it has unintended effects, especially for smaller players in the field. So it means something very different. The more difficult 
a compliance framework is for any company to comply with, the more it's going to advantage existing players that probably have practices that we want to change to begin with. So those players may be able to find ways to comply with the letter of the law, but not necessarily the spirit of the law, whereas a smaller organization is not able to do that as well. Um, so I would actually issue a call both for technologists to get more involved with regulators and especially at small companies and for regulators to get more involved with smaller entrepreneurial companies, because that is going to form the basis of the technology world that we see in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and we need to make sure that whatever regulatory frameworks are being instituted is something that it is actually possible for a small company to comply with. Um, especially if it already accords with their value system. So what we don't want to do is to hope to set standards for how and expectations for how these communities are going to operate, but effectively end up re-advantaging the players that we were hoping to bring accountability to, to, to begin with. You hit on a, a great point there that has been a, a concern for me, which is that, you know, knowledge is increasing exponentially in our species and no one can know everything. And it's difficult to even keep up. Thankfully, there are, you know, there are published papers and textbooks and online resources that you can use to jumpstart your education and level up. You, know, you and I didn't have to invent fire or the wheel today, and we didn't have to invent the integrated circuit to have this podcast over Zoom. We got to benefit from what was learned before us. But nonetheless, with things accelerating so fast in the technology space, it's hard for even technologists to keep up. So I love your Absolutely. point there about technologists working with regulators, policymakers, et cetera, and understanding that you have to help them keep up in order to make good and reasonable policies and reg informed policies and regulations. And there'll always be some political differences and different belief systems that go into this, but, but I'm most concerned with educating them about the technologies that need some degree of legislation, some degree of regulation. Yeah. It's interesting. I There was a particular entrepreneur that told a story about her work um, with, I won't call out the specific state, but a regulator uh, in the state where she was living at the time that would have had an effect on um, cryptocurrency and a variety of other like blockchain related assets. And what this regulation initially did is just adopt the framework that had been proposed elsewhere. And this entrepreneur then reached out to one of her representatives to say, look, this is this is not what you want to happen. There are going to be all these negative consequences. And it was actually in conversation with that representative that the the government officials like you're right like help me figure out how to do this better and so she ended up inviting a bunch of people that she knew um, from her industry to come basically have a sleepover party for them to get in a google doc together and like work on drafting this legislation and so it sounds like um, naive in some sense to be like, you really need to talk to your regulators. You can influence this. But especially the more and more local you go, the more and more opportunity there is then to have that impact. And so um, it is possible and it's important because as you said, like not everybody can know everything. And and keep up even when you are, you feel yeah. like you are leveled up on something a year later, the field has moved on. AI Absolutely. has changed dramatically in the last several years. And so 
if you're not at least keeping qualitatively abreast of the latest developments and capabilities and risks, then it's difficult to form great legislation and, and policies on that. So that's the culture that I would love to see us uh, lead in the United States, which is a culture of working with the legislators and not thinking, oh, I don't like politicians. Politicians are bad. They, they, they can enact good legislation that ensures inclusiveness and opportunity um, and provide guardrails to make sure companies are focused and aligned on ethics and responsible applications and services. So I, I hope we can develop that kind of culture and community, the tech legislative cooperation. I'm actually curious because you have spent uh, time now working with an organization that is civics minded. Like what have you seen as being affected, effective in the Austin community when it comes to thinking through issues of tech and society and how those filter between regulators and technologists? I certainly I'm not an expert in this of uh, this sense of culture and community as you are, but from my experience in Austin, um, and I and I have been part of lots of consortia and alliances and organizations outside of my day job. So I would say that by and large, Austin still has an incredibly creative and progressive culture. Now, these traits change as a city grows as fast as Austin and as and as technology becomes an even more dominant part of the overall industry landscape and so on. So certainly in my 20 plus years living here this time, I've seen changes in these things. But one commonality I'd say is it's a creative city and it's a progressive city and it's a city where people wanna do the right thing. Uh, it's a city where I often hear entrepreneurs talk about something that's cool before I hear the word monetize. I hear mm. entrepreneurs talk about social impact sometimes before I getting bought out. Um, and, and I really like that. I've experienced the opposite in certain other tech hubs, but here there seems to be a, a greater sense of, is what I'm doing cool? Is what I'm doing gonna make things better for somebody? Does it have a good positive social impact? In fact, at one point, Austin was number one in nonprofits per capita, probably too many at one point because they're all fighting for resources, but that speaks to the nature of the, the tech culture here because yeah. many of them, like our own Austin Forum on Technology and Society, are tech nonprofits dedicated to this mission of elevating everybody's expertise and explaining how they can adopt and integrate new technologies that drive new innovation with positive societal impacts. And so I think that resonates, that, that whole Austin Forum vibe resonates throughout the 2 million person metro area. And uh, I think it's one of the things that makes Austin really special. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Amy, it has been great having you here today. I look forward to seeing you at future Austin Forum events and maybe developing some of those events around some of the themes that we talked about today. It sounds great. I look forward to that as well. Well, thanks, Amy. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.